Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. After explosions in the Merrimack Valley destroyed homes, residents are dealing with life without gas and in some cases without work. But it's just trying to find a way to kind of keep my head above water until everything calms down and goes back to somewhat normal. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll explore how New England's aging infrastructure contributed to the explosions and what we can do about it. And we'll travel along New England's border with Canada and visit large swaths of wilderness that have remained largely untouched. They've sort of been forgotten along with most of the northern border itself. Plus, we'll discuss the largest unsolved art heist in history, the theft of 13 pieces of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. I mean, to pull frames off the wall and shatter the glass, and it was clearly not people that loved art that did that. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. On September 13th of this year, gas lines in the Massachusetts towns of Lawrence, Andover, and North Andover exploded, leaving one person dead, dozens injured, and many homes and businesses damaged. Now thousands of people in Massachusetts are left with no natural gas in their homes and businesses. The company that owns these gas lines, Columbia Gas, has said it plans to restore service to the affected areas by November 19th of this year. Meanwhile, the Massachusetts National Guard has been deployed to help distribute hot plates and space heaters to the affected individuals. Now, in a minute, we're going to look at why these explosions happened and what can be done to fix our aging infrastructure. But first, WBUR's Quincy Walters reports on what life has been like for Merrimack Valley residents since they returned to their homes. Among the places people in the region can go for help is House of Mercy. It's part shelter, part church, part donation center to make sure people have access to some essentials. It's a cramped space stacked nearly floor to ceiling with diapers, water, and canned food. Mabal Valenzuela walks through the tight spaces surveying the inventory. This chaos that you see here, uh, we've been getting a lot of donations from the community. and People have been great bringing stuff in. So what we're doing is dividing kids' clothes, men's clothes, and just kind of get things divided. So when families come in, we are able to assist them better. How long do you think you'll need to be here for helping people from this? Well, we, I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, I don't even think that the city will have an answer to that. So we are going to be helping them as long as they need to be helped. Which could be a while. House of Mercy has a cache of warm clothes in anticipation of colder weather. Among the visitors here is Betsy Santiago of South Lawrence. She's getting diapers, pillows, towels, and food. Santiago says she has an electric stove, but life is still hard without gas. We got to fill up the tub with the, with the boiled water and all that stuff. But, you know, it's going to be at least a month or two until they get to us. So... And so it's going to start getting cold, like, within a week. Yeah. So we hope for the best, you know. We just want everything to go back to normal. We pray for the best. That's all. There are lots of prayers at House of Mercy, where some people say God is the only one who can help when they've lost so much. 
This prayer is for a woman whose basement was destroyed and she has nowhere to go. In addition to the prayer, she receives a list of shelters. Across town in South Lawrence, you'd be hard-pressed to find a restaurant that's open because the gas in the area is shut off. John Farrington owns Carlene's Coffee Shop, a breakfast and lunch place. All you can hear is the hum of the fridge. On a normal morning, we'd have 75, 80 people in here, all giving the waitress a hard time, the waitress giving them a hard time. Uh, you, you definitely want to hear the refrigerator humming over there. It would all be drowned out by, you know, the music and the talking and the chatting and dishwasher being way too loud back there, but <laughs> it's a sounds that I miss now. Farrington says he's lost about $12,000 in food since last week. He says he's worried about his waitresses like Michaeline Roberto. You know, some of us, for the waitresses, it's day-to-day. You know, we're used to getting that cash every single day, and, you know, I'm, I'm a week out of work, and I, I'm really feeling it, really feeling it. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to run out and go and get another job. This is my home. I love this place. Um, but it's just trying to find a way to kind of keep my head above water until everything calms down and goes back to somewhat normal. Restaurant owner Farrington says last week he was in the busy season. He says he was finally scratching his way up after the recession. I was happy and looking forward to good times. It was going really well. And and now it just has all crashed down. Farrington says he just put up the fall decorations. He says it'll probably be time for winter decorations when he opens again. And by then, Farrington thinks all of his employees will have found other work. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Quincy Walters. Since Quincy filed that report, the restaurant owner, John Farrington, has reported that the insurance company for Columbia Gas has contacted him and has said that all the losses will be covered. The National Transportation Safety Board is currently investigating the cause of these explosions, and some are pointing to New England's aging infrastructure as a cause of concern. We spoke with Nathan Phillips. He's a professor of earth and environment at Boston University, and he's involved in a National Science Foundation project. It's called Infrastructure Ecology to learn more about New England's gas infrastructure. He started by telling us what happened with these gas explosions and the role that human error played. It looks like a pressure sensor on an old pipe that was being decommissioned was sending signals back. It was decommissioned. The pressure went to zero, but it was sending signals back to a control system saying, I need more gas, I need more gas. And so the pressure kept going without end. So yes, human error is actually the largest cause of pipeline incidents nationally. That's interesting, human error, because we're going to be talking a lot about the the actual infrastructure, the the pipes that go underground, but you, you say that human error is the thing that causes the most problems, probably here and in almost any place we have an accident. Yeah, it's a nexus between human error and aging infrastructure systems, because in the particular case of the Merrimack Valley, the reason a crew was on site was to address the aging and leaking infrastructure. So you have the need to continually maintain a system, and that means that there's more human activity associated with it, and that there's more chances for the human error to to occur. Our sense in this region is that our infrastructure is very old and very outdated. Of course, different parts of New England's uh, systems have been updated over time, but are, are we right in thinking that our infrastructure is indeed outdated compared to the rest of the country? Yes, and you're right that different 
different companies are doing better or worse in their service areas, but generally speaking, the eastern seaboard and New England, it's just these are old cities with old pipes. Here in Boston, we have pipes old, over 100 years old. If we need to put our finger on the problem here, it seems as though in our region we have a lot of things that that combine to cause this problem. Maybe not enough government oversight, enough personnel to make sure that the oversight is taken care of. We've got aging infrastructure. It's a pretty old part of the country. We've got bad weather. I'm sure that that plays a part in it. And we're also really tightly congested. There's a lot of people living on top of one another, which makes it harder to do the types of maintenance that we might expect. More expensive, certainly. Did I hit all the, <laughs> hit all the key points here? It seems like there's a lot conspiring against us having a, a safe and efficient system of, of gas pipelines. Yeah, what you're describing is an urban infrastructure ecosystem. And any healthy ecosystem, its parts need to be working with each other and cognizant of what's going on. So my background is actually I'm a forest ecologist, and I bring that lens when I look at how cities function and the systems that undergird cities. And we have these seemingly myriad problems to deal with, but really it's a problem of coordination and harmonization of the different elements in that infrastructure ecology. So when you think about it, we have a lot of co-located and interdependent critical infrastructure. So our gas lines, our electrical lines, our roadways, our communication lines are, are kind of all running along the same corridors. And in some cases, like with the electricity and the gas, they're actually going in parallel right into the homes and even more at burner tips of gas stoves. In fact, they meet. The electrical system and the gas system meets because in that case, we want it to because we want that ignition source to ignite the fuel. But when we don't manage these systems in a coordinated fashion, then things can go really wrong. And we see evidence of that over and over again in in different incidents that show up. Talk a bit more, if you would, about how that would look if we were to change the system, because I think all of us have the experience of a slowdown on the roadway. We see that there's workers digging in the ground and and maybe they're pulling up an old piece of of water or sore pipe and they're putting in a new one. But what you're suggesting is that that ecosystem, that, that time that they dig into the ground into a very old system might be an opportunity to up upgrade the electricity that's under there, the water that's under there, the sewer and the gas all at the same time. But that's probably not the way that we're doing it, given the way that we've arranged our utilities. You totally nailed it. So when we mapped the gas leaks in Boston, for example, several years ago, we saw case after case of new road paving right over old leaking many decades old pipelines. So there's just lots of missed opportunities to achieve cost savings and efficiencies if we were just coordinated up. So in this concept of infrastructure ecology, it's not only the physical and biophysical systems that are co-located and interacting, but it's the entities that are responsible for managing those systems that uh, more often than not operate in isolation of each other. And so there's a need for those knowledge networks, if you will, to be linked up and synced up so that they're talking and, and coordinating. That's not an easy thing to do because often you have very different jurisdictions. So often the road network is managed by the city, whereas the gas system is managed by an investor-owned utility, which has maybe a much broader or only partially overlapping service area. So it's not easy, but it's clear that the lack of coordination is setting our cities back. Our cities are not as smart as they can be.
Nathan Phillips is a professor of earth and the environment at Boston University. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. As communities in the South recover from Hurricane Florence, residents here who are old enough to remember are marking an anniversary, one of the worst storms in the history of New England. It's been 80 years since the great New England hurricane of 1938. Winds of more than 100 miles an hour whipped the region and hundreds of people died. Rhode Island Public Radio's environment reporter Avery Brookins looks back at how that hurricane impacted communities and investigates how climate change could impact the intensity of future storms. September 1938, the eastern seaboard is lashed by a tropical hurricane. Footage from this historic newsreel shows streets that look more like rivers and a building almost completely submerged underwater. Tidal waves about 30 feet high destroyed homes and cottages, and the hurricane caused millions of dollars in damage. There aren't too many people still around who lived through this catastrophic storm, but one man from Westport who gives lectures on the town's history remembers that day. His name is Carlton Mackember. I also have a nickname. In the fifth grade, 1937, a Polish boy by the name of John Gavush called me Cucumber Mackember. He says that nickname spread through his school like wildfire. So he just started going by Kuki, and the name has stuck ever since. Kuki was just shy of his 13th birthday when the 1938 hurricane rolled through. I came home from school that day. Uh, it was about noontime, and the sky was a, a faint yellow color, way up high, a faint yellow. I never saw that before. He remembers his younger brother telling him about his ride home on the school bus when they drove over a bridge on the Westport River. He said the water was so high it came right in the bus, right over the floor. Now the next morning the bridge was not there. Fortunately, their home was spared by the storm. But two family friends, Charlie and Elma Soul, who visited Kuki's mom that day, weren't so lucky. My mother said, that wind is blowing real strong. Why don't you stay here till the wind dies down? And Charlie said, I've seen plenty of wind at East Beach. We're going home. Well, uh, they found the two bodies in what is known as the Let part of the Westport River. The city of Providence didn't fare any better. Almost 14 feet of water surged into downtown, and people drowned trying to escape. The hurricane of 1938 was the worst storm to hit the eastern coast in recorded history, but it ushered in a new era of scientific storm warnings. Probably no future storm will ever take such a toll. Back then, it may have seemed impossible that New England could ever experience a storm like that again, but as the earth gets warmer, the region could see even stronger hurricanes. We know that the warmer the water is, the stronger hurricanes can become. That's Isaac Guinness. He's an oceanography professor at the University of Rhode Island. And uh, with the global warming, we know that the ocean is getting warmer and the temperature most likely will continue to increase in the near future. Guinness says the air is getting warmer too, and warmer air can hold more moisture, which means more rainfall during hurricanes. And Guinness says as sea levels rise, storm surge could cause more flooding. 
But regardless of how climate change might affect hurricanes, some New Englanders still love living close to the ocean, and not always just for the beaches. Westerly resident Alex Nunes, for example, says he and his wife wanted to move their family out of a cramped spot in Providence. And Westerly had everything they were looking for. Nunes is a journalist and worked for Rhode Island Public Radio in the past. Now he's the news editor for the Westerly Sun. At a previous job, he covered flooding in Westerly after Hurricane Sandy, but Nunes didn't consider that when he decided to move there. The mind kind of does this. You see a house that you really like and, you know, the price works for you and you see the yard and you can picture your kids running around in the backyard and the life you're going to live in that house. And then you think, oh, I guess this is an area where hurricanes sometimes come. But then you think, oh, maybe it won't be that bad. Noon says he feels optimistic about the future because he says his house is far enough away from the ocean and it's slightly elevated. But still, he says thinking about climate change makes him nervous. And maybe he has a good reason to worry. Scientists are now starting to study how climate change could impact the pace of hurricanes, which could lead to more intense inland flooding. Here's how. URI professor Isaac Guinness says the speed of a hurricane is connected to the jet stream, which is like a river of wind about 30,000 feet above the Earth. How quickly the jet stream moves, Guinness says, depends on what's happening in the atmosphere around it. The strength of the jet stream is determined by the temperature gradient between the warm air in the tropics, cold air to the north. But Guinness says the air temperature in the Arctic is warming quicker than other regions, which means the jet stream could move slower, causing hurricanes to slow down too. Guinness says that could be a problem for Rhode Island. Our rivers are relatively short, and they can fill up rather quickly with a strong rainfall. And so if a hurricane would slow down or stall in the same location for two, three days, we estimated that we could bring a very significant inland flooding. And Guinness says that means the hurricane barrier in Providence that was built in the 60s wouldn't be very helpful because it could create a pool effect, trapping the flooding from rivers inside the city. There is some research going on at URI to improve hurricane models. Guinness says they're looking at things like better predicting how a storm could impact infrastructure, like roads. We just don't see frequently hurricanes in our regions, and it's uh, easy to just push aside and not think about it, uh, but we should. Guinness says the goal is to provide more information to residents so they can be safer and to better prepare emergency response teams so they can save more lives. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Avery Brookins in Providence. Coming up, we'll visit the Northland. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Tough immigration policies from the Trump administration have been the focus of protests in recent months. Those were protesters earlier this summer outside New Hampshire Governor Chris Inunu's office. They were demanding action against checkpoints set up by U.S. Border Patrol along Interstate 93 in the White Mountains. But across the state, there's a lot of support for those checkpoints for a reason that has little to do with immigration. NHPR's Brita Green has more. 
U.S. Customs and Border Protection has been running checkpoints more frequently under the Trump administration. They've been setting up here in New Hampshire on Interstate 93 near the small towns of Woodstock and Lincoln. Their stated goal is enforcing immigration law. And to that end, the checkpoints have been fairly successful. Agents have arrested more than 50 people over the past two years, people they determined to be in the country illegally. But those in support of the stops are often quick to turn attention to another topic, drugs and the state's opioid crisis. There have been drug busts. This is Governor Chris Sununu speaking with reporters last month. We've been able to seize uh, paraphernalia and drugs out out of those checkpoints. Um, They seem to work fairly responsibly and reasonably in the state of New Hampshire. The connection between drugs, illegal immigration, and crime is not a new one, of course. It's part of the standard argument President Trump makes for ramping up enforcement. Here he is at his State of the Union address earlier this year. For decades, open borders have allowed drugs and gangs to pour into our most vulnerable communities. The idea is more checkpoints will catch more drug dealers in the country illegally. And if they catch more American drug dealers, that's a bonus. Here in New Hampshire, despite the political divide on immigration issues, the checkpoints are broadly accepted among state residents, at least by one measure. That's a survey conducted last year by researchers at the University of New Hampshire. Overall, 70 percent of respondents said they supported checkpoints as a check on immigration, but also to investigate potential drug smuggling. I heard similar feelings on a recent trip to Woodstock and Lincoln, near where the stops have been taking place. On a weekday morning there, booths at the Sunny Day Diner were packed with tourists in town for a mountain vacation. But the staff, they're locals. To us, it's more about the drugs and the immigration. Waitress Rebecca Borges has been living here for almost 20 years. She says, sure, there's downsides to the checkpoints. For one, they cause traffic to back up. But if you live around here, you know how to take the side roads. What she's really worried about is dealers coming in. And it's been getting pretty bad with a lot of children in this area. We've had a couple deaths. So I think for a lot of parents here, we're happy about it. Just down the road, John Payne runs an inn with his wife. He actually got stopped in the checkpoints this year with two young Chinese women that have been working for them this summer on visas. The agents suspected Payne may be trafficking the girls, but after some delay, they were sent on their way. He took it as a good sign, not a headache. If they're catching human traffickers, all power to them. When it comes to immigration, he says, we need to enforce the laws on the books. And he thinks it helps to have another eye out in general for illegal behavior. If if somebody catches a heroin dealer in my community and puts them in jail, I'll shake their hand twice, you know. (laughs) The vast majority of drugs seized at these checkpoints, though, have not been heroin or cocaine, meth, or fentanyl. Instead, it's been marijuana and derivatives, things like edibles and hash oil. So simply put, checkpoints haven't caught drug traffickers. This is Gilles Bissonnette with the New Hampshire ACLU. He's been fighting the checkpoints and won a court battle to have drug evidence thrown out from a couple stops in 2017, arguing the way the searches were performed was illegal under the state constitution. He says most people caught with drugs in these stops are carrying only small personal use amounts of marijuana. And any notion that the checkpoints are making a dent in the state's drug crisis are unfounded. These are family members. These are kids. These are parents. These are not drug dealers, as people have been suggesting. Back in Woodstock, Roberta Vigno, a financial manager at the Woodstock Inn, agrees. We do have a we do have a drug problem in this town. Do is that going to stop that? No. The checkpoints, she says, have been all over the news. Big-time dealers, they know what they're doing. They'll just avoid the interstate altogether. The most recent checkpoint last month resulted in no arrests, either for drugs or immigration violations. That's according to Border Patrol. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brita Green. Those checkpoints miles away from the border with Canada are an increasingly visible reminder of the fact that 
Almost all of New England is within the boundaries of U.S. Customs and Border Protection oversight. And while there's nowhere near the security presence that you'll find on our southern border with Mexico, our nation's border with Canada has become increasingly tightened. Because this is the longest international boundary in the world, though, there are a lot of wild places and big gaps where it's still easy to walk across undisturbed. The northern border is the subject of Porter Fox's new book, Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. In it, he details his own travel along our northern border, a trip he made by foot, by boat, and by car along the winding, often remote, U.S.-Canada border, starting in the state where he grew up, Maine. Porter Fox joins us now. Porter, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Your book charts your journey along America's northern border, and the line itself in your journey starts somewhere off the coast of Maine. Maybe you can describe the start of the border force and what it's like there. It's it's kind of hard to find. Actually, it's the easternmost point in America, continental America, and you can kind of go out to West Quaddy Head near the town of Lubeck, Maine, which is the easternmost town in the lower 48. And out at sea, there's no markers. There's, you know, really not much indication of where the border is. It's it's classic North Atlantic, slate gray ocean, giant swells, uh, very stormy region. Some of the some of the biggest tides in the world are there, in fact. And out there, there's you know, kind of lobstermen and fishermen fighting about where the where the border actually is. And it wanders in towards the cliffs and goes up into Passamaquoddy Bay and and the St. Croix River system and wraps around the the panhandle of northern Maine and then shoots west toward the uh, Pacific. You talk about an island there in that uh, in that borderland, Machias Seal Island, and it's one of the places along the border that it's a little unclear who owns it. Maybe you can talk about the the story of that. Well, why isn't it completely settled where the sovereignty lies on that island? You know, it's it's pretty indicative of uh, a lot of confusing points along the border. There's about a dozen gray areas, they call them. And it's just where both countries claim jurisdiction. You know, there's documentation that supports both arguments. Canada goes back to, to language in uh, royal charters that, that granted the islands along the coast um, to Canada. And then after the American Revolution, there was different language in the 1783 Treaty of Paris, which gave those islands to the state of Maine and to the United States. So, you know, it's conflicting language. It's been fought over for many, many years now. And to be honest, it's one of those things that when there's an election, when there's sort of a political event happening, something like that, it pops up in the news. But it's it's happened many, many times, and they just haven't resolved it. And this time around, it was it's very fertile lobstering ground. So, you know, with the decline of the fishery in the Gulf of Maine and, and end of the cod fishing and, and a lot of ground fishing up there, uh, Nova Scotia fishermen were looking to make some money, and so they started setting traps on Machia Seal Island, which had traditionally been an American lobstering ground. So that's when the, the fighting began, and it's just kind of escalated from there. It seems surprising that not just in this place, but in other places that you chart, as you mentioned, th- there is this kind of gray zone. Should we be surprised that in 2018, these two countries haven't completely settled on where the border is? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's sections of the border and Minnesota's boundary waters that literally weren't even marked with monuments until the early 1900s. 
It's a border that has kind of been taken for granted. You hear a lot of headlines about the southern border, a lot of fuss about every mile of that border and what's going on there. And yet, in the north, there's entire sections of the boundary that are either unmarked or undecided. It's the world's longest international boundary. It's also the world's busiest international boundary, with 1.6 billion dollars in goods and services, 400,000 people legally crossing it every day. So it's vital to our economy. It's vital to our relationship with Canada. Having disputes like this along the border, and having, for example, the French teenager that jogged across the beach in Blaine, Washington, a couple months ago, ends up in a detention center. Well, I've been to that beach. There is no, there are no signs. There's no indication of stop here, turn around. You're crossing into America. It's just a beach. There, there's hundreds and hundreds of places like that along the border, and almost every time I visited it on these various trips, I, I would see something that, you know, I just couldn't believe. Let's loop back to the place where we start, and and you have a beautiful passage here near the beginning of your book when you spend the first few days of your trip across the border in Maine's Northland. And I'm wondering if you can uh, do a brief reading for us. Absolutely. On a map, the boundary is a line. On land, it passes through impossible places. Ravines, cliff bands, bogs, waterfalls, rocky summits, white water that few people ever see. 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of their southern border. 12% of Americans live in the Northland, and most of them in cities like Seattle, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Cleveland. Camping 30 feet from an international border was unsettling as well. It struck me that if someone was trying to sneak across, their greatest find would be an unarmed solo camper with a boat and enough gear and food to survive for a month. No matter what CBP had said, no one was watching this section of the boundary. An hour later, a beam of light shot through the woods. The glare was too bright to be a flashlight. I thought it might be a vehicle, and I crept to the riverbank to see. The beam came from the opposite shore. I walked upstream a hundred yards and looked again. Across the river, I saw that the light was coming from the crest of a full moon rising over the treetops. Silvery light filled the forest. My hands were silver. The St. Croix was silver. I saw my shadow on the forest floor. It was unnatural. The glow was too bright to be the moon. Astronomers call the edge of sun or moonlight passing over the earth a terminator or a twilight zone. The zone moves a thousand miles an hour on the equator. It travels at half that speed in the Northland. At the North Pole, you can walk faster than the Terminator, creating your own sunrises and sunsets. An otter slipped between my feet and disappeared into the river. I watched it for a moment, then walked back to my tent and stared at the changing light until I fell asleep. The emptiness of the Northland was unfamiliar to me. It was devoid of light, cars, people, trails, and roads. Clouds of stars glowed through the gaps in the tree cover. The forest was pure black where the moonlight was shaded. I grew up in this country, had explored it for 30 years, and thought I knew it. But this was different. The closer I got to the line, the more primal the terrain became. Hmm. It, it's such a beautiful image of a place. And what strikes me is, is that, as you say, there are so many places along that northern border in which commerce is king, in which we have people 
driving by in cars just to go to a concert in Montreal or to take auto parts across to Detroit, but you're in a in a purely wild place there. And, and I wonder how that strikes you, that so much of this border is is populated, is, is a place where two countries that have long time been allies are, are shaking hands, and in so many other places, you're just out there completely on your own. It was the, the best part of researching this book was finding these wildernesses perfectly intact. You know, who knew that in Maine, the Northwoods are 12 million acres? It's bigger than to Massachusetts. It's so huge and untraveled and uh, mostly roadless. I mean, really where I went, the only way in there was with a canoe. Before 2001, um, around half of the border crossings in the northern border were unguarded at night. That's the kind of terrain that is up there. Very sleepy towns, hundreds of miles of wilderness in between them. You have the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. You have Glacier National Park, North Cascades National Park, uh, Maine's North Woods, like I said. I mean, these are some of the largest, most beautiful wildernesses that you really have to either bushwhack or canoe into because they just, they've sort of been forgotten along with most of the northern border itself. You did in that in that short reading, though, say something key. You mentioned that no matter what CBP said, no one was watching this section of the boundary. And maybe you can describe a little bit more the role that they play in the in the borderlands. Well, Customs and Border Protection states on their website that their primary goal is stopping terrorists from entering the United States. And yet that doesn't seem to be what they're doing, certainly not on the northern border, where the only known terrorists to sneak into the U.S. overland came from the north. There's been significantly more terror suspects arrested on the northern border in the last few years, according to FBI documents. It makes sense. It's the path of least resistance. There's huge gaps in this border. 2,000 agents watch, you know, this 5,500-mile-long line. The southern border is, you know, less than half as small, and you've got more than 18,000 agents down there. There's just not enough people to do the job, not enough resources to do the job. So you, what you see is you see CBP setting up on Highway 95 in Maine, you know, 93, whatever, 100 miles south of the border, 50 miles south of the border doing these spot checks. You see the ports of entry getting militarized and um, getting more aggressive with questioning and whatnot. But if you're just going to build up those ports of entry and that those kind of highway crossings and do nothing about the wilderness in between, it's not going to stop the problem that you say is, is your primary task. Porter Fox is the author of a new book called Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. You can find an excerpt of the book as well as photos of Porter's travels along the border on nextnewengland.org. Porter, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We're working on a reporting project trying to understand our relationship with Canada and the border and how it's changing. And we'd like to hear your thoughts. Been stopped at a checkpoint? Do you do business in Canada? Do you live right on the border? Send us your stories on Twitter at Next New England. Coming up, we'll explore the largest art heist in history. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund. 
supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. On March 18, 1990, 13 priceless works of art by painters like Rembrandt, Manet, Degas, and Vermeer were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. I should say that the estimated price of the heist was some $500 million. It's the largest unsolved art heist in history, a story that's fascinated people for almost three decades, and it's now the subject of a new podcast from WBUR and the Boston Globe called Last Seen. Kelly Horan, the co-host, senior producer, and senior reporter of Last Scene, is with us. Kelly, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. For those in our audience who've never been to the Gardner Museum, maybe you could describe the place for us first. Well, for those in your audience who haven't been, just imagine a Venetian palace, something quite grand and beautiful that might look out, if you're in Venice, on the Grand Canal. But it, at the Gardner Museum, this Venetian palace is turned inside out. It's turned in on itself so that from the outside, you see yellow brick and terracotta tiles on the roof. When you walk inside, you realize that it's wrapped around this really magical courtyard with ferns and palm trees and antiquities. It's quite a magical thing. And then all of the galleries overlook uh, or abut this courtyard in some way. So it's quite an enchanting place. It's not just a building that houses art, though. The, the building itself was the creation of Isabella Stewart Gardner. Exactly right. This was her creation. I think of her now as an installation artist. She had the vision for this palace, and she helped execute its construction from the ground up. There's a terrific photograph that I found of her in my research. Uh, She's up on a ladder. She has her skirts on. She's overseeing her workers who she had brought over from Italy, Italian stonemasons, because she felt that only Italians could recreate a 15th century Venetian palazzo. This was at the turn of the 20th century in Boston when she was building this. And she modeled it after a palazzo in Venice that she spent many summers in. It's called Palazzo Barbaro. It's on the Grand Canal. And the windows overlook the canal. And uh, what Isabella Stewart Gardner decided to do was have her windows overlook the courtyard facing inward. She sounds like a remarkable person. And I know that you have become very fond of her as you've been doing your reporting. But tell us a little bit more about her. Who was Isabella Stewart Gardner? Well, Isabella Stewart Gardner was a remarkable person. She was a real visionary, and at a very young age, she was touched by art and uh, had traveled. She had had the means to travel with her family, and so had an awakening very early in her life to the power of art. But it was later, after she lost her only child, a, a little boy named Jackie, just before he was two, that she traveled to kind of heal and regain her spirit. And the travel reanimated her. She went all over the world every couple of years. And that's where she really realized that every culture has its expressions of beauty, and she began to collect art. She had an ambition at a very early age to one day have a museum, and uh, that's what she built. That's what she created. You you wrote a piece in the Boston Globe uh, called Isabella Stewart Gardner's Loss, echoing through the years in which you write about uh, how profoundly this this loss uh, changed her, and and you you call the museum her bid to vanquish mortality, which which I really love. I love that idea. It's, it seems so central to what she was trying to do. 
Well, I think it was. And just before she was going to buy the land to build the museum, her husband died, and that had been uh, part of his dream, too. He was a wonderful shepherd of her creativity. He sort of got out of the way and cheered her on. She had other loss besides. And and I think that what you see in the Gardner Museum, in the will that she left, which said that all of this was for everyone to enjoy forever, but don't touch. <laughs> so she left a will that basically said, this is for you, but if you, if you remove anything, if you change anything, then uh, it goes away. She had a provision in her will that if anything was taken out or added to, that the uh, museum would revert to uh, Harvard University. So I, I want to get in now to the story that you tell about this art heist and and this mystery that's persisted over the decades. But a, a large part of the first episode of Last Scene really is about the importance of the artwork itself. And I'm wondering as you did your research and your reporting, if your view about the importance of this work began to change, if you began to think differently about these works of art that were stolen beyond just the dollar figures that are attached to them. I'm really glad you asked that because I have to say that it was the dollar figures that were the hardest for me to wrap my head around. I I can't wrap my head around a figure like $500 million, but I can wrap my head around something that would have meant something to her. And so... As I began looking into the heist itself, I had to step back first and read everything that I could about Gardner. And in reading not only biographies of her, but her correspondence with her collectors, uh, her dealers, and, and with friends, you get a real picture of what these pieces, individual pieces, meant to her. And so I began to feel this loss as her loss. You know, she she had written to the dealer in Italy who found Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, that his description of the sea picture makes her fairly ache for it. I mean, uh, so you can imagine what that would have meant to her. Besides that, beyond what it might have meant for Gardner, I think probably the most eloquent spokesperson for this loss was Anne Hawley herself. She was the director of the museum at the time of the robbery. She had only been on the job for six months at the time. And she described it to me as, you know, imagine that you could never hear Beethoven again or see Hamlet again. And and I was thinking, well, what if I couldn't hear Purple Rain again? You know, it's <laughs> like you think about things that you almost take for granted as uh, signals of beauty in our culture. And these pieces are just gone. And that's that's a loss for all of us, not just for the museum. Let's actually hear a bit from your podcast. And here is Anne Hawley, as you say, the director of the Gardner Museum at the time. It was overwhelming to see what had been done. I mean, to trash a museum like that, it was just like the barbarians had been through. I mean, to pull frames off the wall and shatter the glass. And it was clearly not people that loved art that did that. I mean, cutting paintings out of frames. I mean, it's uns unspeakable. It's, and I, I guess I experience this, I often think of it's like having a death in the family. It's just, it's too big to really talk about. It seems so overwhelming to those who were there at the time. As she describes uh, barbarians going through the museum, maybe you can talk a bit more to us about what exactly took place that night. What was stolen in in, in filling the gaps and, and how exactly it was taken. The night of March 18th, actually it was the morning of March 18th, 1990, it was in the wee hours after uh, St. Patrick's Day, 
Two men dressed as Boston police officers came to the Palace Road entrance of the museum. They said to the security guard uh, that they were responding to a disturbance, and he buzzed them in. And uh, once inside the museum, it was very easy for them to uh, have their way with the museum. They had him step away from the desk, which was where the only panic button uh, in the museum was to alert distress to the outside world. They had him call the other guard that was on duty back from his rounds, and they simulated an arrest. They said, you know, don't we have a warrant out for you? Show me your ID. Got him up against the wall, handcuffed him, did the same to the other guard, and then brought them down to the basement and uh, shackled them. They were about, I would say, 50 feet apart from each other in the basement, so they couldn't communicate with each other, and they spent the night there. And then the thieves uh, went up into the museum. We know that they went straight to the second floor, and they uh, went straight to the Dutch gallery for those Rembrandts that they stole. And as you say, uh, Rembrandt, uh, one of the world's most famous and most enduring artists, is also one of the most stolen artists. His work has been stolen many times over the years. So that's in some ways not terribly surprising if there's going to be an art heist. But one of the things that's fascinating, I think, about the reporting and about the story as a whole is that the 13 pieces that were stolen include these Rembrandts, but also include some other things that seem to make no sense to the narrative. What, what else can you tell us about the, the work that was stolen? Okay, so 13 pieces in all were taken, and you're right, alongside three Rembrandts from the Dutch Gallery, there was a Flink landscape. Hovert Flink was uh, previously attributed to Rembrandt, so that sort of makes sense. Maybe the thieves thought that they were grabbing another Rembrandt. They took Vermeer's The Concert, one of only 35 or 36 Vermeer's known to exist, so that kind of makes sense. Hugely valuable, I'm sure they figured. But they also took from that gallery a, a Shang Dynasty coup, it looks like a vase, and sort of a, a metal vase from uh, ancient China. And that makes that seems to make no sense. Although in, I will say, in our reporting, we, uh, we found the guy who says he wanted that coup. And also in our reporting, we discovered that it wasn't just sitting on the table, it was bolted to a table, and they had to pry it off with great force. So that was a deliberate grab. In another gallery on the, on the second floor, they took five sketches by Degas. They were horse sketches. Depending on whom you ask, they were either um, not very sophisticated or an incredibly sophisticated choice. (laughs) And they took the uh, bronze eagle finial from a Napoleonic flag, which also uh, could strike one as random. But again, in our reporting, as listeners will hear, there was someone who also wanted that finial. So there you have it. And then there was also a, a 13th piece taken from the first floor of the museum, Edouard Manet's top-padded cafe-goer, Chez Tortoni. I want to actually play a clip here. And this is Anthony Amori. He's the, the Gardner Museum's security director. He plays a prominent role uh, not only in your podcast, but in, but in the history of the Gardner since the heist. He wasn't there at the time, but he's been leading the investigation ever since. And, and he, he walks through a little bit about uh, the strangeness of that night, the, the alarms in various rooms and some of the choices that the, that the robbers made. Let's listen. There's no alarm in the blue room on the first floor. All of the motion sensors from that night were either the, the doors when they came in or out, or the second floor. So what does that tell you? As someone who looks at these art heists constantly, I can tell you they're 
it looks like two different crimes. Something's not right. There's no getting around that. If something is not right, when you look at what was taken from the second floor, the manner in which it was taken, and what was taken from the blue room on the first floor, it's almost as if it were two different heists because the MO is different. They're not similar, except that they happened the same night. So, Kelly, what did that tell you as a reporter, th- this idea that the people who are most closely investigating this seem to believe that there are almost two different types of crimes happening on two different floors of the museum? Well, what it told me as a reporter is always go back to the beginning because you think you know. You know, this is a story that's been out there for so long and so much has been written about it and said about it. And you think you know, but then you hear that and you think, no, I don't know anything. So it really, uh, just that revelation alone caused me to question a lot of things I had taken for granted as true about the Gardner heist. And it makes you wonder who would have who would have uh, been able to, to take that? Who would have been the person who would have had access to that painting? Why that painting? How did it get out of that room? Why did the alarms not go off? Uh, it almost makes your head explode with all the possibilities. Do you believe that Anthony Moore and the others who've been investigating this for so many years will ever get to, to the bottom of it, that will ever find out what happened to these great works of art? I'm ever hopeful. <laughs> I think if anyone can bring them back, Anthony Amore can. I'm absolutely persuaded, absolutely persuaded that he is, he's the guy. He knows more than anybody about this. Of course, 28 and a half years is a long time, and uh, people have died and memories have faded. And who can say uh, what secrets uh, were lost when people uh, left this earth? I just don't know. It really is a fascinating story, and we're going to be interested to, to follow along. Kelly Horan is co-host, senior producer, and senior reporter of Last Scene, the new podcast out of WBUR in the Boston Globe that explores the theft of these 13 pieces of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum back in 1990. You can go to wbur.org slash last scene to hear the first two episodes of the podcast and see images of this missing art. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us, and and thanks so much for this great reporting. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. You can also find our show wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Paul Roost and John Parati. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com and thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.